0: Will Bitcoin's institutional adoption ever end? Who or what will legitimize crypto? And how is blockchain democratizing access to capital? Welcome to Word on the Block, the series that takes a deeper dive into blockchain and the emerging technologies that shape our world at the intersection of business, politics, and economy. It is what we cover right here on Forecast News. I'm Forecast News editor in chief, Angie Lau. Well, we experienced Three major disruptions, you could say, in modern economy. First, we had the steam engine, which really elevated global trade and transportation, and then electricity. Well, you know what that did for us. And more recently, internet disrupting access to information and really bursting open the floodgates. My next guest says that blockchain and AI is the fourth disruption by collapsing the money pyramid, to democratize access to capital. And all you have to do is look at what's happening in Bitcoin and crypto adoption right now. Let's welcome Amber Godar. She's co-founder of the Decentralized Finance Ecosystem and Capital Market Alliance Block. Amber, it's great to have you on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: All right. So you have been a participant in institutions, uh, you know, legacy financial firms, J.P. Morgan, uh, Goldman Sachs, And now you're on the other side of the coin, as we say. Why do you think we're suddenly seeing a surge of institutional investors coming into the cryptocurrency
1: space? Well, there are technically there are four reasons. Two reasons are Practical, and maybe the two other reasons are more philosophical. Um, From the practical point of view, you have regulation and legacy infrastructures. When you look at financial institutions, they are behemoths that are managing billions of dollars of other people's money. And so they are constrained by very tight regulation in terms of what asset they're investing in, how they're investing in it, why they're investing in it, and where they're investing thing in it. In the past two years, we have seen uh, leaps forwards in in terms of uh, regulatory clarity. So today, we know that Bitcoin is an asset, whether it's a commodity or a currency or a a utility coin um, in most developed countries. So we have this regulatory clarity. And the second uh, second thing is that we have seen the development of a very strong infrastructure, very strong new infrastructure that sort of mimic the operational processes that these institutions are used to in traditional uh, securities market. So today, as an institution, you can directly invest in cryptocurrency by taking custody, or you can indirectly invest in cryptocurrencies by either um, investing in derivatives or uh, investing in funds. Now the other two, um, the other two drivers, uh, which I call more yeah. philosophical, have to do with monetary policy and fiscal easing. So what we've seen since two thousand and eight is an abnormal, in my view, an abnormal inflation in asset prices, and this has continued in uh, in two thousand twenty. What does this mean? It means that as a portfolio manager, you would be interested in a new asset class that is uncorrelated or with zero correlation to uh, other asset classes and in a way that is akin to a digital gold. And this makes the theory or the investment thesis for Bitcoin quite plausible. What do you think the the value
0: proposition is uh, in in addition to that? I mean, Alliance Block is uh, disrupting the investing banking model. Uh, from what I understand, corporates get direct access to the market via a token. So you're really kind of taking that decentralized uh, thinking and infrastructure of blockchain into the investment banking model. How, how has adoption been? And do you think that uh, more and more corporates on the enterprise level, from the more traditional, the more institutional mindset, are starting to wrap their heads around these new functionalities using
1: blockchain? So again, we need to look at two things. We need to look at crypto assets and Bitcoin as an investment. And then we need to look at blockchain as a technology. One should always remember that you have the technology and the application of the technology so you had electricity and the electric bulb you have blockchain and then you have bitcoin and it's been, I think since 2015, we've already seen a lot of banks um, getting involved in blockchain because they have seen the value proposition of enhancing yields, enhancing pro- productivity and uh, cutting costs. And for example, JP Morgan has been one of the first banks on the street in creating a, a blockchain team in early 2015. So they have creating a quorum. They've created um, the JP Morgan coin, who has actually massively improved or should massively improve cross-border transaction by decreasing error, cutting cost, enhancing yield, etc. And now with regards to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, as, as an asset class, I've already, uh, I've already discussed it. So, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are In my opinion, a fantastic asset class, a fantastic alternative asset class, because, well, okay, there's high volatility, but at the same time, they have high return. They have what we call excess positive kurtosis, meaning that the probability of extreme values is much higher than. let's say the stock market, they are non normally distributed. And according to our calculation, they have zero correlation to other asset classes. Well, some people might disagree, but in my opinion, they are using the wrong wrong formula. They're using Pearson correlation to calculate correlation. And they find that Bitcoin has 20% correlation to other asset classes. According to our calculation, taking into account that is, it is not normally distributed, we have 0% uh, correlations. Well, if it's
0: not correlated to anything that we can understand, I mean, how, how can one take a look at the markets and, and actually try to understand um, fundamentals, understand volume, understand liquidity, understand um, you know, how the market is viewing Bitcoin? Is it truly in a vacuum? if the participants like you and me are the same and we're
1: engaging in a parallel system. So you you just highlighted a very important point Which is the fragmentation of data, and the noise in the data that we have in decentralized space. So the more decentralized you are, the less accurate you can end up with uh, with your data. And this is something that we're working on, which what we're calling the data tunnel, where you take all of this noise. In, uh, in the various protocol in the system, uh, all of this unstructured, fragmented data, and you turn it into uh, structured data to be able to analyze, as you said, correctly analyze the various flows, analyze the volumes, uh, analyze the validity of this data, because a lot of this data is, uh, is uh, inaccurate.
0: So, so give, us, give us a clue that, that, how should we be thinking about it then? I mean, if we were to if we were to understand where prices are going and and that is the hot topic of conversation right now, this is this is what people are talking about. As you and I know, it's probably the top one percent of what actually matters in the industry. But let's talk about it. This is what is bringing people in. If people were to think about it, what what are the what are the things that they should be thinking about that is fragmented, uh, and
1: disintermediated from markets that they do understand? So first, as I mentioned before, you have the inflation in traditional asset classes. Some people will tell you that Bitcoin valuation currently is very inflated. I would answer, you know what, look at Tesla valuation, we're trading at 1000 PE. Where have you ever seen that before? So. This is also an interesting point where we're starting to see a disconnect between what traditional finance taught us how to look at valuation and what it's this wrong. sort of new normal we're, we're in is showing us. And one interesting input I, must, I, I I'm, uh, may add is the flows of re- retail investors. Why is, mm-hmm. why is Tesla so overvalued? It's because retail investors believe in Tesla and just buy Tesla shares like they buy chocolate Right, and I would say in some way, Bitcoin is also driven. Most of the flows in Bitcoin, whatever people say, are actually you know the your your crypto uh, enthusiasts that are buying and holding Bitcoin and believing that Bitcoin is going to reach um, you know some are talking about two hundred thousand, some are talking about one, $1 million dollars in a few years. But indeed, when you look at Bitcoin, you have a very limited supply, and if the demand stays at the levels that it is right now, which I believe mm-hmm. that this demand is going to keep increasing, it is only normal for you to see a price uh, price increase. I, I
0: totally agree with you. I mean just t- it's, it's, it's you know supply and demand. we've got 21 million that will ever be mined ever. I think the calculation is that they will probably reach that cap in 2140 because of the increasing difficulty of computational f- formulas that miners have to undergo. 18 million have been mined. 20% of that 18 million actually is lost because you know somebody either ate their passwords or got rid of it or threw away their hard drive. Um, and then you have what, as you've very well noted, this in- not only retail interest, but institutional interest and Tesla, it's certainly not the first; they won't be the last. Followed by uh, BlackRock, followed by uh, possibly so many others uh, who are who are seeing this as as a, a real asset class. So when you take all of that into consideration, these are new dynamics that I that that are really unfamiliar to a lot of people. I mean, you you can just imagine all the risk and compliance people in corporate treasury offices right now. Uh, really concerned about how do they calculate? Uh, how do they calculate all, all uh, you know what all the fundamentals and, and the dynamics of, of the price? So you talk about this this kind of the crypto crowd, this this characteristic of the, the retail you know sentiment that's really driving things. What what have you seen from this space that have really shifted the game and you know I'll, look I for example I, everybody knows what I'm talking about it's GameStop this is what we saw in GameStop this kind of this kind of crowd retail investor conglomerate kind of coming in and um really shifting the game here uh, is this a this is is this a new dynamic to not only crypto but to all
1: markets? What are your thoughts? So first, before, before answering this question, I just want to uh, highlight an- another point that I-, I missed. There is something that is uh, very peculiar to uh, crypto asset and to crypto trading. It is a technical analysis. So yeah. these markets, In my view, the only markets that are so correctly driven by technical analysis. We use technical analysis in effects, but we also use more fundamental calculation in order to, you know, calculate overvalued effects pairs versus undervalued effects pairs. But in, in crypto, Technical analysis becomes a sort of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, a good way um, to know where where levels are going, where flows are going, is to be good at technical analysis. Now, moving moving back to to GameStop, uh, to be honest, I was. I mean, I, I looked at that and I was smiling, uh, and I was smiling. Why? For two reasons. Reason number one. And I'm going to give you a counter example to GameStop. You do remember in 2012, the JP Morgan whale. You do remember what happened to the CIO mm. office at, at JP Morgan. Right. So you had a bunch of hedge funds that knew that um, Bruno Exil, the JP Morgan whale, had a really large position in an off the run CDS index. And they decided to squeeze him out. Not only did they squeeze him, they bled him dry of $6.2 <laughs> $6. billion, right? And the funny thing, the SEC came in and actually fined JP Morgan $1 billion extra because according to them, they were badly managing risks. So today you see these retail investors, these day traders, knowing that these hedge funds, and they didn't hide it, it was public, that these hedge funds were extremely short, this particular stock, and extremely short, meaning 140% of available shares short, and well, they decided to squeeze them out. And I was looking at that and I was like, well, you know, good for you. Finally, you're using, you who have been left out of capitalism, you who have been left out of the exponential growth that we've seen in in asset under management and in capital growth, you have finally played the same game that the institutions are, are playing. And in my view, if someone needs to be fined, It should be these hedge funds that had these sort of very large, risky position, short position on uh, on this stock. Now, there is also another aspect, which is a a little bit more ethical, I would say. Having been on these chats, it is true that some have have done it out of greed and, you know, good for them. This is the current system that we have in the world. But many of them were actually ex-clients of GameStop and have decided that gamestop can have a digitizing strategy and that gamestop can stop generating cash flow and they decided to come in and bail them out which is exactly what the government has done in 2008 coming and bailing out financial institutions so this is a very interesting concept where you see that finally you have like a sort of power shift you as a retail investor you become an active investor and you're the one who's deciding, especially on these companies that are that have been shorted, uh, that have been very shorted by the market, where you're the one deciding, well, you know what? I like this company. I'm going to come and, and bail them out. And it's a beautiful concept. Now, I'm not going to admit any opinion on the viability of this strategy because I don't know the fundamental of GameStop. I don't know the business plan of GameStop, but philosophically talking and ethically talking, it is very interesting. Now, also, if you look um, in terms of volume, you have retail traders today representing 25% of the flows in capital markets. Oh, I'm sorry, the flows in equities uh, particularly. And that has moved, I think, from 10% the year before. Where did that, did that come from? Well, it came mm-hmm. from the COVID-19 crisis, people staying at home, having a little bit of cash and being able to start benefiting from capitalism by finally investing their capital to generate more capital. Do you think that you know, in
0: in the <laughs> in the blowout that was GameStop and and all the things that we saw with Robinhood and and the like. Do you think that we are seeing more movement into a wider
1: crypto adoption and interest by retail investors? Well, definitely. But in my view, the GameStop disaster was mainly a uh, a PR and communication fiasco. If I was the board of uh, Robinhood, I would fire the head of communication and I would fire the head of community because it was very insensitive and in, in a way very insulting to their community to not come on the live stream as a CEO and explain to these day traders who are not dumb Explain to these day traders that they had one billion, I think it was one billion a capital requirement that has been called by the DTCC and the, the clearinghouses, I am sure the community would have understood. But the way they have done it was so insulting that, you know, they have lost their reputation. You know, it takes ages to build a reputation and one second to lose it. So in my view, this is, what, uh, this is uh, what went wrong. But indeed, we are starting to see higher adoption in crypto, a lot of interest in crypto. Look at the Coinbase IPO. In pre-IPO terms, I mean, the company should be valued at around $8 billion. In pre-IPO markets, it's currently valued at $100 billion. That's twice the valuation or twice the market cap of the London Stock Exchange and four times the market cap of the NASDAQ. What is, what is driving this? Well, it's retail investors that um, want to have access to crypto by proxy because they still don't know how to invest in crypto. So they're saying, or they're telling themselves, let's invest in Coinbase, that's a proxy investment to crypto. Mm -hmm. Same thing that happens, I would say in the 80s, 90s, when a lot of these portfolio managers, pure equity portfolio managers couldn't access gold because they didn't have a, a commodity allocation or they didn't have a derivative allocation to be able to buy gold futures. What did they do? They started by buying gold miners. So for me, there's there's a lot of similarities to, to what was happening during the, during that time. Uh, you know, and we're seeing DeFi pick up a lot
0: of this interest, uh, decentralized finance. We're also seeing robust activity in NFTs, non-fungible token space. Uh, people are seeing these new blockchain-based financial vehicles as a way to really participate in, in a, a parallel universe that is accessible you know instead of uh having their trades shut down arbitrarily because you know of of the uh, of the uh <laughs> the the debacle as you said of GameStop um people are are definitely increasingly moving in the space we're we're also seeing that support the kind of moves we've seen in cryptocurrency prices i want to talk about the the broader picture, how does that democratize capitalism in your view? Getting rid of, as you've said, the pyramid structure of uh, what has been very much a part of modern economy
1: up to up till now? Well, you're flattening the investment structure, right? By flattening the investment structure, you're allowing players that couldn't enter the game to actually enter the game and you're allowing that couldn't enter the game to enter the game crypto started as an alternative um I don't want to say underground but an alternative financial system in reaction in my view to what happened in 2008 where a lot of people got massively pissed off and justly so that banks were so unregulated and regulation were so lax on banks that it allowed banks to have such a huge risk that almost destroyed our our financial system and so these people who started the uh, blockchain slash crypto revolution wanted to democratize access to finance democratize access to capital to those who normally couldn't couldn't access it but it's not just blockchain it's also the platform economy it's also the digitization that has allowed uh, people or or companies like robin hood charles schwab etc to offer um, offer retail investor very cheap or no fees uh, no fees uh, trading, but well in a way when there's when the, when they don't make you pay for the product, it means you are the product. You're the least, product. At least in crypto, <laughs> if it's free, you are not the product. You're paying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, indeed, uh, crypto has opened the way to. It is such a dynamic industry. DeFi is so dynamic. We have so many new products coming in on, a, on almost on a daily basis. And we only started building DeFi application maybe two years ago, and it has boomed.
0: And a lot of interesting
1: um, uh,
0: observations
1: from traditional
0: finance, right? How are DeFi innovations, you think, um, going to be possibly adopted in
1: traditional finance? Well, we will need certain, so you you basically need to bridge the two worlds. Mm. As I was saying before, uh, unfortunately, the big money, institutional money, is locked up by regulation and is locked up by infrastructure. So you need to be able to offer um, an infrastructure that looks, feels, and smells uh, similar to what you have in traditional finance. That's number one. Number two, you have security as well because if there are a lot of unsafe products. There's a lot of uh, cyber attacks, so you do you still have a lack of security, a lack of auditing, and you have a risk that many institutions will not be willing to take at the current stage. But things are moving so quickly, and there has been so many advancement with regards to you know contract auditing with regards to. Um, uh, firewalling etc that in my view in the next I would say from now to the next 10 years DeFi is going to absorb traditional finance at least in the investment space and there is also something that is quite beautiful when you think of it from a philosophical perspective central banks are the one that decide rates right Central Bank Mm -hmm. and the Fed decide that, so where is the Fed rate today? 25 basis points or something like that? Mm. And Mm. this base rate decides the rest of the economy, decides how much you will get paid on your deposit and how much you need to pay on loans. But now in DeFi space, it's every protocol that that becomes its own central bank and decides how much interest is going to pay. So when you have yields, the two-year US Treasury yields are negative in real term. And when you enter a product on USD stable coins, for example, that is paying you between 5 to 10% per annum, in a way it becomes a no brainer for you as an investment manager to start looking with interest at this type of product. So as soon as we have the infrastructure, and we have the operational process that can guarantee recourse, that can guarantee the safety of the investment, I am sure that we're gonna start seeing um, institutional investors coming into the DeFi products. Is that product ready, ready yet? Well, we're working on it.
0: <laughs> because I, I think that the space is still so young and it still very much feels like the wild, wild west and even the regular, the, the the regulatory bodies around the world, are increasingly looking at the space and trying to figure out how to either police it or enforce it or or, or something. Uh, the space is the space is still really really young, and and you know, for a lot of institutional investors, it's it's still way too dangerous. But for the for the brave. Uh, and no risk, no reward. Uh, there, there is just some really incredible gains, uh, but also incredible losses. Do you think that right now, you know, we talk about the innovation in DeFi? What is just happening in this space? I mean, is just is it just a speculative platform at the moment? What what use case can we actually see emerge from DeFi in your view?
1: Yeah. All right thousands of use cases in terms of uh, borrowing and lending, in terms of insurance products, in terms of uh, data. Uh, But you are absolutely correct in saying that the space is young and the space is still uh, not mature enough to allow institutions to come in, which I fully agree with you. And in my view, what we're going to see, I mentioned that DeFi is going to absorb traditional finance in the next 10 years, but before we get to this stage, what we're going to see is a fork between pure decentralized product that whatever governments are going to do, they won't be able to regulate them. And at the same time, decentralized product that might lose some of the tenet of DeFi, which is um, anonymity, transparency, full decentralization, that are going to allow these institutional institutionals to come in. And in my view, this is healthy because you want to absorb them. To abso- absorb them, you need to adapt to them and then you can unleash the full potential of, uh, of decentralization.
0: You know, it's a, it's a great point. Um, you know, and, and I'm mindful that there's, our, there's you know, on-ramps are easy, off-ramps are hard, right? Unless you're KYC'd. Off-ramps uh, right now is where most of the regulators and most of the enforcement activity is happening. You know, you can you can accrue a lot of you know wealth, but if you're not a good actor, you, you can actually change it into fiat without getting caught. I mean, that at the moment is is what we're seeing. Um, but do you think that you know at some point we're going to get to products that actually go beyond the speculative nature which it feels very much like right now um, and you know it's just allow what i think the promise of blockchain has always been which is peer to peer you know i've got something and the the frictionless immutability of the transaction makes it ease of use and and you know beneficial for both parties and truly
1: democratize capitalism I mean well, we are we are heading this way and again as you said it's an industry in its infancy we have congestion issue on the ethereum blockchain but there are new blockchains that are being built i mean binance smart chain polkadot cardano and the rest that are offering solutions to scalability that we we still don't have in ethereum despite ethereum 2.0 <clears throat> coming out uh, coming out I would say, I don't know, uh, uh, mid-2020, mid-2022. But uh, yes, indeed, uh, there is still a lot of work to be done, but we are definitely heading in in the right direction. And I wouldn't, I do not like to use the word speculation because in the end, right now, you have speculation in all asset classes. And even if mm-hmm. some traditional finance people will tell you, oh yeah, you know what? But I'm looking, I'm looking at metrics and I'm looking at valuation, etc., mm-hmm. etc. But yeah, I'm sorry. All of the metrics have blown out. We are in a new normal, mm-hmm. and we are in an abnormal um, economic uh, economic world where, you know, last year the Fed has printed 40% of all dollars in existence. 40% of all dollars in existence. This is a little bit mind-blowing, right? The United States is very, very, very lucky that it exports in dollars, it imports in dollars, it issues in dollars, and it pays its debt in dollars. Because trust me, if it wasn't the case, you would have had a massive hyperinflation similar to what you've seen in the Zimbabwe's and the Hungary of the world. So in my view, if there's going to be any idiosyncratic event or any system, systemic event that is going to break down the trust that we have in the U.S. government, the world is going to change. And investing in crypto assets, investing in Bitcoin and the rest is giving you a sort of a protection to a systemic change in the system. And it, to your point, it untaps a lot
0: of liquid wealth uh that um is that the currently uh billions of people who are unbanked 1.2 billion i think the number is of unbanked um and not being able to participate in that system so if we're going to get there what do you think the challenges are right now what do you think the are we getting to that danger point a tipping point if you will that that you know does one system
1: win over the other We have been at the tipping point. To be honest, since quantitative easing started, we have been at the tipping point. And what's holding the world together, or at least the developed world together, is the dominance of the USD as a reserve currency. As soon as we lose this, maybe it will be in 10 years, maybe it will be in in one year, but as soon as you have an event that breaks down the trust in the USD, the world is going to change. And this is why it is interesting. Or it is necessary for you to have an investment in something that is uncorrelated to the USD, that is uncorrelated to governments. But going back on your point uh, with regards to emerging market and developing countries, most of what we discussed here is with regards to uh, high-income developed economies. But Mm -hmm. it is true in a lot of emerging countries. You using Bitcoin or using these seamless um, These the seamless protocols, seamless payment protocols, is something that is very important because it allows you to access wealth and it allows you to transfer wealth when normally yep. you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to. And remember, there are a lot of countries in this world that have very tight, um, very tight control on their financial system, whether it's because you have an embargo or whether because internally they want to maintain. Uh, they want to to maintain a pact uh, of uh, control of the uh, of their currency, and being able to use cryptocurrency allows you sort of to 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 get out of of this embargo and get out of this tightening on on economies. People do not realize, but there, the number of countries you know embargoes are very dangerous because it doesn't it doesn't kill governments it kills the, the people. And by killing the people, you turn these people into fanatics. Most of the wars in the the world and most of the revolutions in the world occurs because you have poverty in the system. And we are seeing more and more embargoes uh, going through. And it is not by embargoing a country that you're going to change a regime, unfortunately. You're just going to alienate the population. And the population is not gonna like the people who are embargoing them. They're going to start liking their governments more. So giving them an escape route is, in my view, something beneficiary for the whole world.
0: And that's probably uh, something that takes another hour to discuss. But um, Amber, I I just want to thank you for the time that you've spent with us. I I do agree with you that the fundamentals have completely been rewritten. Uh, and uh, it's it's going to be really a steep learning curve for a lot of uh, institutional and traditional type investors, and all of those asset managers and money managers uh, to take a look at this new asset class and try to figure it out. But um, you know, it does it does take that bridge, and I think uh, both of us are standing on that bridge right now. So thanks again, Amber, for joining us. This is Amber Godar of Alliance Blog. And uh, it was great talking with you. And thanks for joining us on Word on the Block.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: And thank you, everyone, for watching this latest episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned lots. I'm Forecast News Editor-in-Chief Angie Lau. Until the next time.